1: Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Jolly, bringing the best of my Times Radio show. You can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or on your Times Radio app. Thank you, Hugo Rifkin, for looking after the place yesterday on the back holiday. Don't worry, that it's now all of my holiday, I think, until the end of November. So, I mean, right the way through, we've got party conferences and Cheltenham, and all of that. In fact, you can come and see us live. We're doing the show live at the Cheltenham Literature Festival. You can get tickets to see us. We are going to be discussing the upcoming election. What year is it, is the question we're asking. Is it 97? Is it 92? Is it 74? Is it, I don't know, 1911? We've got a great panel for the Times Ready debate. We've got Aisha Hazarika, Kate McCann, Patrick McGuire and John Curtis. If you want to come and see us live it's mid-October, Friday the 13th of October. Just search Cheltenham Literature Festival and you can get tickets online right there. Right, coming up on today's episode, our fantastic series continues political editors. Today we reach what is it, 2013? Francis Elliott becomes political editor, smack bang in the middle of the coalition and he covers from the coalition to Covid with a whole load of Brexit in between. It's a lot of fun. That's coming up in just a moment but first, as Never. Let's take a look at the day's news with today's Columnists. The Columnists on Times Radio. And as it's Tuesday, we say a very good morning to Times Columnist Danny Finkelstein. Hello, Danny. Hello, Matt. And uh, I'd like to be joined by Miranda Green, Deputy Opinion Editor at the Financial Times. Hello, Miranda. Hello, Matt. Now, somebody's been in touch saying they're very excited that you're both here. Brings back memories of the great this week with Andrew Neil. I'm in the Zanister in Scotland. I'm not comparing myself to Andrew Neil, of course. I haven't got the hair for it. But it's nice but you, you two are are standing sparring partners.
2: Well, sparring we I mean, I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: sorry, I wouldn't,
2: I wouldn't dare spar with Danny, you know. I just sort of I just, I just I just I just try to control my face as he as he as his wise words drop forth, you know.
3: Very good. What were you yeah, gonna say, Danny? That's well, we, we we did we were together on Newsnight quite a bit, oh, rather yeah. than on this week. Miranda, Miranda was really the star of this week, and we um, we did, we did uh, a fair bit of Newsnight together, um, where we talked about uh, Liberal Democrats and Conservatives, and uh, and also Gordon Brown. I, I I don't know whether you remember Miranda, but I kind of ran out of uh, ways in which Gordon Brown could win a general election, uh, and and each week I was asked to come on and kind of give some sort of nuanced explanation of what his strategy should be and i realized there was actually no no longer a strategy <laughs> no longer a path it was it was quite difficult because i didn't want to appear like you know the stereotypical tory saying there was no chance for him but i just couldn't intellectually work it out
2: they were they were great days i remember them very fondly i do remember one one night where they we were right at the end of the show on Newsnight, and danny was forced to justify the fact that his eyes were closed while I was speaking, that he was thinking about what I was saying rather than that it was just all very late and I was being incredibly dull. So I hope not to do that today. Dan.
3: Well, that <laughs> is true. David Owen did once fall asleep on television while Jeffrey Howe was speaking and only woke up when Jonathan Dimbleby said to him, What do you make of that, David Owen? And <laughs> that's he, he, actually, he replied, uh, that, I don't think that's the real issue, Jonathan. That's <laughs>
1: Well, saying so, well, we'll keep an eye on you. i Are both on the Zoom? I'm pleased to see that both of you uh, you have got something in common. Neither of you uh, felt the need to tidy up before coming on the Zoom this morning.
3: Thanks, Matt. I was, really, <laughs> <laughs> I was very relieved when I saw I did actually tidy up because, like in fact, previously had a very large bag of uh, Chelsea kit. Which I removed specially. So that is that your
1: job? Done. Do you have to wash it, Danny? Is that your job at Chelsea? <laughs> <laughs> so, so I,
3: I washed off all of our uh, sponsorship logo.
1: Oh my god! Right, let's get on and talk about politics. Now. To some extent, maybe you're, it's a rerun of the conversation about whether or not there is a route back for uh, Gordon Brown. Uh, Danny is there a route back for Richie Sunak. Later uh, on the front of the Times today, polling shows that Labour now has sustained leads over the Conservatives on issues that you'd normally expect the Conservatives to be strong on. Immigration and asylum, uh, law and order, uh, tax. Um, now, to some extent, it's because the Tories have collapsed and Labour sort of bumping along where they were. Is there anything that we can read into that about a route back for the Conservatives, Danny?
3: Yeah, I think, I think it's obvious that the chances of a Conservative majority in the next election are really, really small. Uh, and it, it, w- it is difficult to think of what the advice you'd offer them uh, to to put themselves in a position to win that majority. So I've actually not done that. I, I've started to say, well, look, what can the Conservative Party do to do two things? One, which is their responsibility as a party uh, to govern the country as well as they possibly can in the time remaining to them. Uh, and secondly, uh, to find a way of minimising any Losses that they might get in an election. I think that's a better way to think of it. Because if, for example, you do what John Major did, and I was working for him then, you decide you're going to hold out to see whether there's a moment where you can retain power, uh, you can often make the situation worse. So it may be in the Conservative Party's case, uh, that the, that two things come to their rescue compared to their current opinion poll position. One is the economy, and the second is lack of enthusiasm for Keir Starmer, despite the fact that I think he's doing strategically the right things to reduce fear of Labour. Uh, those two things can reduce the uh, conservative party's deficit i think it's a small chance that it'll be enough to uh ensure the party wins the general election but fortunately governing in the national interest and electoral strategy come together they they are in fact the one thing is what you would give them to uh, as advice to the up uh, to do the other
1: um, Miranda, the one thing that struck me about the immigration thing is that immigration and asylum is the thing that the Conservative government, particularly under Rishi Sun, that with stop the boats and all that, have really put up in lights. Is that you know they've they've embraced the problem, they've told everyone in the country that it is a massive problem, and yet the more they bang on about it, the worse their ratings on this issue seems to get.
2: Well, absolutely, and in fact, over the summer when they had this slightly bizarre strategy of having a week on each of their five pledges. The, the, the week that was supposed to be, look at what we're doing on immigration, look at what we're doing to, in their words, stop the boats, was such a disaster because what it actually showed that they weren't stopping the boats and they didn't have a grip on the immig- illegal immigration situation at all, that then bled over across into the next week, which was supposed to be their NHS-themed week. You know, so in fact, the problem that they've got is they've highlighted this issue which is almost unmanageable and in which all the in, almost all the indicators are going completely in the wrong direction. And that leads to a feeling of the opposite of what Danny's talking about. You know, this idea of governing in the national interest, demonstrating lack of grip on something that you've chosen to highlight is really not the way to show that you can at least You know be competent and therefore go on to minimize those losses at the election which is i'm absolutely agree with danny that's what the game is for for sunak so i think particularly on that immigration topic as you say it's extremely interesting to see that polling this morning Um, and also you know labor is very very comfortably ahead on all on the areas where you would expect them to be and where they historically are like health and education but lots of these other policy areas including immigration the Tories do not have a lead the only place where they do have a lead interestingly is defense and security I don't know how much one can put that down to the Ukraine crisis and the fact that the government's been very sort of staunch on NATO and an alliance against Moscow on that Um, I don't know what Danny thinks about that I mean Keir Starmer does try to play up the kind of labor patriotism angle from time to time But it's interesting that that one policy area is still a strength for the Tories' defence.
3: Yeah, I think that the, the Labour Party's decision is about whether or not it thinks the economy will be a strong issue for it. In next year or not. If if not, then they do need to select an issue to fight the campaign on, not hop around from one issue to another. The NHS is usually a very good issue for Labour. If, a to- if the sales to the NHS is high, it usually favours Labour. Um, it may be that they just do a broad sweep of time for a change as an issue. But what Ed Miliband did is, it came to the election in 2015, he kept hopping from one issue to another. So it was tax evasion uh, one week and it was the NHS the next week and it was rich people the week after. And it didn't, they didn't settle on an issue. And, um, you know, most of the political science says you should run on the economy if you can. That's the strongest issue. Uh, And if you can't run on the economy, you have to have another issue. This is the reason why some Tories think, you know, the best issue for them will be the echr which i happen to think will not be a great issue because i think it will split the conservative party and i don't think i don't think enough people will be on their side but that's the that's the reason why there's talk of that um but my view is you know the conservative party can either run on the economy or it won't be able to win a general election if the labour party has the economy on its side though it should run on it so, uh, what I'm waiting for from Keir Starmer is some choices to be made about what he regards as his secondary theme, as well as the uh, as well as the economy. In case when Rishi Sunak runs, there's a period where the Conservatives can run on the economy, and Labour finds it more difficult. So that that is that that that's the strategic question they ought to be uh, thinking about. That having been said, I think time for a change would be strong enough for them, even if they don't get the campaign selection of issues right. It's just that that will. Re- Reduce the uh, size of any victory.
1: So just looking at the YouGov polling on the the best party on the economy. If you go back to when uh, Keir Starmer became leader, uh, they're up three, four, five points. I think on the uh, on the economy, maybe a bit more than that five, six, seven points. But if the Tories have halved, that seems to be the, the case right across the board. That the Labour Party is nudged up couple of points, three, four, five points. But the, Tory, uh, the number of people backing the Tories on that any, any given subject seems to have halved, and that's why Labour now have a lead. So it's not that there's huge now new public faith uh, in the Labour Party. It's just everyone seems to have lost faith with the Conservatives. Um, Miranda, you mentioned the NHS, uh, and it's, <laughs> despite being absolutely miles ahead on the NHS, it's not stopping Keir Starmer returning to it. Let's take a listen. This is him launching a, uh, a mission to build an NHS fit for the future. For me, the NHS is personal. My wife works in our local hospital. My sister was a nurse and my mum was a nurse until she became too ill to work and the NHS, which had been her livelihood, became her lifeline. And so the NHS runs through my family like a stick of rock. That's why my Labour government will train a new generation of doctors and nurses. The NHS runs through my family like a stick of rock. Just uh, slightly confused me because I think he he means the NHS runs it through like the word Blackpool, through a stick of rock rather than like a stick... Anyway, that's a separate point. Um, every election we have the Labour Party warning there's sort of 24 hours to save the NHS, Miranda. Do they need to still keep banging on about this with the soft piano music and the sense of it being like, an, like a religion? So well,
2: I'm really pleased you phrased the question that way because I would really... Question: Whether we are still at the stage where the NHS is our, you know, uh, this is our unestablished national religion, as it always used to be described. You know, the one thing that the whole country, no matter your background, no matter your income group, etc., could unite around the principles of the NHS. We probably do still unite around the principles, but public satisfaction with the NHS, as they actually experience it day to day. Has really, really gone down in the last few years. And clearly, the COVID crisis exposed the consequences of kind of sticking plaster policies and sticking plaster funding settlements over the last few years as well. So, I actually am not sure how much, despite that colossal lead on the issue, the Labour Party can just get away with, as you say, the sort of softly, softly Vaseline on the lens emotional appeal to our love for the NHS. I think they actually have to come up with some really concrete ideas as to how it can deliver for patients. And again, I think he's got to be a little bit careful talking too much about the workforce and not talking enough about the patients. And I think that, you know, Wes Streeting, the kind of rising star on the right of the Labour Party did a very clever thing when he said he wanted to be the shop steward for the users of the NHS, for the patients, because that's actually the thing that matters is the care. So I think, you know, clearly they can campaign on the NHS because people see it falling apart. It's the most obvious experience of that phrase broken Britain that they are using to hit the government with again and again. Yeah. They do actually have to have some solutions to the problem and not just emotion. Uh,
1: what do you think, Danny? Because I mean, um, Wes Streeting has been, I mean, he's been sort of very publicly critical of the NHS, because I suppose because he can, because he's Labour's shadow health secretary.
3: Yeah, I, I wouldn't do that again if I were West Streeting. You know, I I think that um actually I slightly disagree with Miranda, really. I first of all, obviously we do completely agree um that uh that it isn't just talking about the NHS with piano music behind it isn't the solution to the problems of of the service. Um and um that and that in office Labour would need to have more than that but i'm not sure they would in a campaign um the truth is that people are incredibly loss averse I, d- I just think um proposing ways of making changes to the national health service is just inviting political rows that Keir Starmer doesn't need his entire strategy seems to me to be closing down every potential row so that uh people's general view is it's safe to have a labour government um and um uh, they're they they're willing to wear and from a strategic point of view should be willing to wear the fact that people will then say well that's a very disappointing offering um because i think that anything you know when people while people in theory want a vision uh for for both the country and for the nhs in practice um i'm not sure that they do so talking very hard tax political strategy terms um then um I don't think that would be the right advice. Of course, speaking personally, um, yeah, I'm extremely frustrated with the idea that it's impossible to have any kind of reasonable debate about the National Health Service. Like Keir Starmer, I'm you know also, associated my wife was uh, I used the NHS myself, and my wife is um, uh, also um, uh, a doctor, mm. um, and um, we care about it a lot. But but it's not. In, but saying that is not enough. Yeah, Yeah. yeah. Uh,
1: and, and anyone who starts doing some of my best friends are nurses. I'm not sure that like helps in terms of uh, you know tackling a problem in a particular particular area. Uh, right, let's well, well,
2: well, also, Matt. I think the thing is, once you actually kind of are exposed day in day out to the NHS experience, which unfortunately I have been over the last sort of three or four years you know, you realise the underlying problems are really bad. I mean, why do we have worse, such such bad cancer outcomes Mm. in the UK compared to competitor economies? You know, you can't gloss over that with a bunch of rainbow stickers. You know, (laughs) we should be doing better. And it's structural problems that mean that we aren't in terms of investment, training, equipment. You know, per head of the population, we have a scandalously known num- number of scanners even to diagnose, you know. Yeah. So that's the sort of conversation I mean, Danny, rather than, you know.
1: I just want to finally turn our attention to uh, possible reshuffles. Rishi Zanaka is going to do some sort of shake-up next week when uh, Ben Wallace will stop being um, defence secretary. Maybe that'll make a difference to the, the, the tour we lead on on defence uh, bigger re- reset is coming later in the autumn. Apparently, Labour will have to have a reshuffle as well. but uh, We all get very excited about these things beforehand. Danny, has there ever been a reshuffle which has dramatically changed the fortunes of a political party?
3: Um, well, I think Harold Macmillan famously um, had a reshuffle <laughs> that sort of led, in other words, uh, that led people sort of panic about his uh, leadership. So sometimes it can make the leader in charge. A look incompetent. In 1981, I think it could be argued that Margaret Thatcher gave her cabinet a sense of direction and ended the squabbling inside the cabinet by making a big political choice. And I would say a similar um, a reshuffle with real consequences was the reshuffle of the shadow cabinet that Keir Starmer uh, carried out that brought Rachel, Rachel Reeves in as shadow chancellor. The reason Although when, it, when the reason it makes a difference in those cases is because the leader of the party is making a political choice um, they're, they're deciding on yeah. the direction of their government um, I, I, if the um, choice is merely about in quotes freshening up the team, uh, replacing one person no one's ever heard of with someone else no one's ever heard of, it makes no difference whatsoever and I, 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 Rishi Sunak has to engage in a, in a cabinet reshuffle partly because uh, Ben Wallace is leaving but it it doesn't seem to me that any other uh, advantage will be gained other than the fact that he has to do it, unless he makes a big choice, decides he's going to have a substantially more liberal uh, cabinet or a substantially more right-wing cabinet as Boris Johnson did. Those reshuffle, may do make a difference to your (laughs) opinion, but most don't and this probably won't.
1: What about you, Miranda? Are you looking forward to updating uh, your your reshuffle wall chart?
2: No. I mean, you know, I agree with Danny, the ones which turn out to be actual purges do seem to make a difference to governments. But anything short of a purge is is pretty much window dressing. I'm a bit perplexed by this idea that Sunak decided he has to remove from the cabinet people who are standing down as an MP. Because I would have thought if, to return to our earlier conversation, what you're trying to demonstrate is maximum available competence from your cabinet in the run up to an election. Yeah. Why not keep people in post, and then allow the people who want to retain their seats as MPs to go off and campaign. That oh, seems to me idea. a slightly odd set of... A sort of genuine pro- do you know sort of what I mean? It seems like caretaker. an odd set of priority yeah, 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 yeah. to... Um, a whole bunch you know, of people so saying, so we'll look after the place, you go and see
1: if you can, you can hang on right. to your seats. Yeah, exactly,
2: because I mean, I understand that they've got this kind of accusation now most powerfully being leveled by the disgruntled Nadine Dorries as she exits stage stage right, you know, of being a zombie government. So maybe they feel some sort of refresh is necessary. But I just think, you know, putting people into cabinet who are then going to be massively distracted by needing to hang on to their
1: do that job as well newly yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: marginal newly dodgy seat is is really questionable approach actually if what you're trying to do is is demonstrate that you've got yeah. some
1: sort of grip Miranda Green from the FT and of course Danny Finkelstein from the Times you can read him in the Times every week just get yourself a subscription go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. up next it's the political editors
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk
1: You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. I don't
4: think that other people in the world would share the view that there is mounting chaos.
2: Where there is discord, may we bring harmony.
4: It is time to put up or shut up.
2: A new dawn has broken, has it
4: This is a decisive moment for the world economy. Now the decision has been made to leave, we need to find the best way. Nothing
2: has changed. Nothing has
4: changed. I have been repeatedly assured that there was no party.
0: Growth, growth and growth. Some
4: mistakes were made.
1: Half a century of politics told by the people who wrote the first draft of history for The Times. This is The Political Editors. On this episode, Francis Elliott, political editor from 2013, on the demise of the coalition... Theresa May's Brexit years and how Boris Johnson tried to get first Brexit and then Covid
5: done. It's a matter of personal regret that I couldn't, couldn't persuade Ed Miliband to do a leader's interview Professionally it was great, you know it sold a lot of papers, kept us in coffee. When she finally decided to go, yeah, I was one of two people that she told and he's the only person that And when I came to pay the bill for the lunch, I see that he put 40 Marlboro cigarettes on the bill so
1: francis elliott let's begin at your beginning then as political editor of the times you returned having been a foreign correspondent in 2013 and the coalition was a new thing to sort of get your head around formed three years earlier and by 2013 it was still going
5: done i i I, i've been there at its formation just i was aware of it as a concept, <laughs> as a reality, yeah. it, it, it blew my mind. These people who I had spent a career ignoring, uh, the Lip Dems and Duke had spent a career cultivating. Cultivating, and suddenly it all and, came. Uh, yeah. like I remember very early on going to a, a, a drinks at, um, I think it was Nick Clegg's Grayson favourite apartment at Admiralty Arch, and the likes of Jeremy Brown were flocking to this new young thing called Match. <laughs> And I was political editor of the Dame. <laughs> I very much on my Jack Jones with my warm glass of wine. Yeah. You know, thinking, maybe I should have spent more time with the Lib Dems.
1: But you knew the Tories very well, not least David Cameron. Yes. Because you'd written a biography of him. Written a biography of Dave, yeah. How did that affect your relationship with him? Because obviously you knew him.
5: Not brilliant.
1: Though. Yeah. I mean, I
5: blame Andrew Coulson quite heavily for. It's fair to say that when Coulson came in as his director of communications, access to some key sources <laughs> dried up. And I, no, I think I think Coulson thought that, didn't want that and and wanted a sort of separation and, and and separated Cameron and his circle from the few journalists that he was prepared to talk to. So it wasn't great journalistically, but I did still know quite a lot about uh, him and his politics and his milieu. So in some ways it was it was an odd decision not to be in Parliament during that period.
1: So explain then your, your journey through through journalism. What, I have basically been following gonna... you. You were at the Independent on Sunday, then I was at the Independent on Sunday some, and then some, and then yeah, we yeah, caught yeah. up at the Times. Well, 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 well yeah. I arrived right
5: in the Times twenty oh seven, late Blair, early Brown, amazing story, the rise of Cameron and falling just short of an overall majority and amazingly I think still one of the most dramatic elections that I covered. And then Phil Webster uh, was replaced by Roland, and in about 10 minutes later, I went to Delhi to be the um, South Asia editor, which is a, a job I always wanted and was delighted to get, and thought I had left the lobby for good, uh, <laughs> and then was returned to the colours three years later, literally walked across the Wagga border from India to Pakistan and then picked up the cabins mid-trip.
1: So wait, you're, literally, your literally return back. to the lobby was, was, was flying was
5: by Prime Minister's plane, which I think is the way that it should be done. <laughs>
1: Presumably, while you were in India, you were watching what how politics was unfolding. Do not, you f- not only watching, but but,
5: <laughs> but but editions of the later editions of the book were coming out.
1: So there were two. Thi- so the two things that stick in my mind about your book: there was the drugs yeah. in the first edition, where you revealed that he came very close to being expelled uh, from Eton, and then in the second, when the revised paperback came out, you revealed that he was pro t- David Cameron's pro to chillaxing gold medal
5: in chillaxing at yeah. the checkers, like nothing more than a. A glass yeah. of decent red and a bottle of decent red and, a, and yeah, yeah
1: and you say relations with him weren't that good <laughs> <laughs> presumably when you left there was still this expectation that the coalition would collapse at any time yeah and it was still
5: going strong in 2013 yes it was and it was i mean in, in some ways it was the it, the coalition was at its absolute apogee i would say at that point.
4: point two and a half years ago nick and i put party differences aside to come together in the national interest and form the first coalition government in Britain for over 65 years. Everything this uh, coalition government has done is there to serve one big purpose, which is to build a a stronger economy in in a
5: fairer society. From 2013 to 2015 it became, as the economy turned and started going gangbusters, if you remember that phrase. It, you know, it was becoming obvious that, that it wasn't a partnership in any way of equals. We didn't really quite understand the extent to which Cameron and Osborne were plotting that, to devour their coalition junior partner, but, but you know that was what, was what was happening.
1: Because you had three parties, all mm. sort of neck and neck in terms of the news, if not the polls, you had Team Cameron, Team Clegg and Team Miliband, all... Talking to you, wanting to lunch, wanting to brief stories, wanting to gossip about colleagues. It felt like there was just a lot going on.
5: There was a lot going on. Funnily enough, the paper took a while, I think, to kind of cotton on to how rich those journalistic waters were. At that point, you were still really filing
1: for the paper rather than the web. Yes. Yeah.
5: Yeah. I mean, there was a. The web was still a massive inconvenience that you kind of serviced resentfully, <laughs> uh, as infrequently as you could get away with. Yeah. Um, and probably quite badly um sorry sorry everybody sorry about that (laughs) (laughs) how did you feel politics was settling down
1: at that point because there was a lot of sort of guardian think pieces that coalitions were here for to to stay forever
5: and i don't i don't think i ever thought that it was quite a painful period in some ways i mean you know uh, uh, miliband had been in the in the sense that because you're right because it was such a contested space uh and you know times matters during elections right you know uh particularly during elections and so there was a lot of there was a lot of allegations of bad faith and and, and it was it was it was it was a personally awkward place to be because you as times Pollard, you're you know caesar's wife you're supposed to be above it you're supposed to hold the ring and that becomes very hard when you're in the middle of an election campaign
1: these six pledges are now carved in stone they're carved in stone because they won't be abandoned after the general
5: election. It is a matter of personal regret that I couldn't couldn't persuade Ed Miliband to do a leader's interview, and I think that was the first time that you know a main leader hadn't done a leader's interview. Uh, but it tells you a bit about the shifting nature of, of i mean although the times matters it didn't matter perhaps as much as it used to Although well, maybe if you had to maybe it would have swung it but well i, suppose it I don't you... think it was a terribly good idea for them not to do it it like... tells you something
1: about actually the weird thing is because i had similar battles as i was at mail online and cameron did interviews i think he did interviews a couple of times you know mm. ed balls did mm. nick clegg did but miliband
5: wouldn't yeah he just really
1: would but it tells be. you something about their approach to I don't know whether it's whisk or the audiences they were trying to speak to. That they wouldn't even speak, not the establishment newspaper yeah. or the biggest newspaper yeah. website yeah. in yeah. Britain. A sort of lack of confidence or something.
5: Yeah, yeah. And if you remember that that campaign was really so stage managed by Cameron. I mean, they really kind of they really got it down to a fine art of small allegedly town halls where they absolutely pack them full of kind of narcs and ask patsy questions and then and then maybe take two softball questions and bundle us all out
4: taking a risk having a punt having a go that pumps me up and it's what is changing our country
5: that was the sort of high water mark of linton crosby's i mean that must have been his dream come true and it worked it absolutely worked it was extraordinary that you arrived back thought i really need to get to know these lib dems (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and two years later, <laughs> all that hard work.
1: Oh dear, an awful lot of lost lunch receipts. Yeah, um, <laughs> no, um, indeed. Did you think that that was going to happen? That the Conservatives would end up? I mean, even David Cameron seemed a bit surprised he ended up with an overall majority in 2015. Know what it's
5: like, Matt. You don't think terribly far into the future. Yeah. It's like if you, possibly you think as far as, you know, what am I doing for the, Sunday for Monday? Yeah. You try to think around as many corners as you can, but you can't really kind of future cast. So, I in truth, I didn't know. I kind of, I knew, I think I always knew that the coalition was, a, was, was not going to happen again anytime soon because it was so badly kind of, it went yeah. so badly wrong for the smaller party, which had been the lesson of every yeah. coalition in the, on the continent. And somehow they managed to convince themselves that, well, it worked out fine for Nick Clegg, right, yeah. but not so much for his party.
1: And then 2015, the big electoral shock of our careers was going to be that David Cameron won a majority. Mm, and so then much. 12 months later he had to deliver on the thing he didn't think he'd have to deliver on
5: so, so there I, I, I did do a little bit of future casting because he had made this speech in 2013 mm. the famous Bloomberg speech where he had committed to this and sold the pass on it he'd convinced uh, against um, George Osborne's advice and Osborne's worries all came true and, and you could see almost from the get-go of that administration that this was the kind of you know this was the spectre that was going to do for him
1: and i think we were both in brussels when he got his deal
4: i believe we are stronger safer and better off inside a reformed european union and that is why i'll be campaigning with all my heart and soul to persuade the british people to remain in the reformed european union that we have secured today
1: his emergency break in the middle of the night yes and maybe it was because we it was all quite late yes but i remember feeling a bit Queasy
5: about it. I was literally queasy that day because I had some sort of vile illness. But um, <laughs> well,
1: maybe that's maybe that's what no, was going no, round. But no. there was this, there was a sense in the middle of the
5: night. This yeah. is not enough. No, and it never was going to be enough. And and do you remember it? Then it, it kind of it but, had already leaked in drafts yeah. So we knew what was in yeah. it. The text was out there. They couldn't defend it because they're oh, all leak. We never comment on leaks. But everybody was. Taking Everyone it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, And and then it's like da da. And then by the
1: time we got to the campaign, nobody mentioned it again.
5: Oh, yes, yeah. I
1: mean, you know. B- were you familiar with Dominic Cummings before the campaign?
5: I was indeed familiar with Dominic Cummings. I had known Dominic since the Business for Sterling campaign oh, yeah. some time before. Uh, so I'd known him since 1999. And then he had run, a, with James Fray, a very successful operation against regional mayors. You know, I, I knew him as a sort of very smart campaigner. I, I'm sure he won't mind me telling this story. I went. To, I remember him first. He had a brief period as um, IDS's chief of staff. Oh, of course, in, in, in Duncan in, Smith, in, yeah, in Old Smith Square, and I met him for a lunch. And he's the only person that, um, when I came to pay the bill for the lunch, he, I see that he put forty Marlboro cigarettes on the bill. <laughs> <laughs>
1: And he didn't last very long in that, did he? And no, he, he ended up turning on Ian Duncan Smith and trying to blow him up, mm-hmm. which, you know, anyone who went anywhere near him again in the future it might have learned there. that lesson. It was absolutely all there, you yeah. know. And what about Boris Johnson? I mean, he clearly then is the, from having been this sort of lovable guy on a zip wire character, it, for the first time, really he had to pick a side when he decided to go for leave. Yeah. And is, was then just on this mad roller coaster, which only ended
5: really a few weeks ago. Ooh, hmm. where, where do we start with him? One of the more I need to keep on me to dig out. One of the more embarrassing intros I think I ever wrote was when. Um,
1: <laughs> that's a feature in itself. <laughs> well, indeed. Uh,
5: although it was a good, a, <laughs> I think it was a still a good intro on its own terms, but it was wrong. He had been sacked for lying about the Petronella-Wyatt affair, was on the back benches. They were scrambling around for a candidate for London mayor. Cameron had wanted Nick Bowles to do it. Nick Bowles, I think, had had cancer. There were a couple of other candidates that let him down. And so I wrote something like, the twin farces of Boris Johnson and the Tories at search searched for a London mayor candidate collided yesterday as blah, 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 blah. Uh, but as we know, he got the gig. Yeah. He was the most powerful elected Tory, you know politician he was the pin-up boy he was you know the 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 myth was born i've already written his political obituary three times
1: (laughs) fully expect to write it again yes exactly it'll be written off again we should i feel obliged as part of this process we should talk about theresa may although i'm very conscious that you and i worked together probably the point we're working together most closely i was writing red box yeah you were the pilot of the times the period 2016 to 2019 yes was so gruelling yes. and so miserable We've and all, so relentless we don't want and to so yes. totally pointless. A session, Matt. I mean, You <laughs> and I. That by the end of it, by the time she left, we were no further forwards on any of the m- no. big, meaningful questions.
2: Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed.
5: It was a horrible gig, and then as soon as the, as the results dropped for 2017, you know, exquisitely bad for her, for Britain, for the negotiation. Elections don't always clear the air uh, like yeah. make things much much worse and that one certainly did and yet on and on she went for two years on and on she went yeah when it was like you know both legs were shot off but
1: you know, know the, you know, the, the and, and all of that stuff the swire amendment and the malt house compromise like, oh, and
5: the oh, meaningful oh, no, votes
1: no, too soon no, too soon the saturday I can't, I can't the, the saturday with. sitting Saturday. where we all system. trooped in on a Saturday <laughs> the first time since the outbreak of the Falklands
4: Fourth, this may be for the convenience of the House no, although the second motion is debatable I think it will be convenient for the two motions to be debated together so that reference to the second motion may be made in the debate and if the second motion is moved I will put the question or questions on that motion without separate debate order Statement, the Prime Minister. Yeah! Mr. Speaker, uh, well, Mr Speaker, I want to begin by echoing what you've just said. Uh, my, my gratitude to all members
1: of the House for assembling on a Saturday for the first time in 37 years. And then we all went home again, nothing the, um, having been resolved.
5: It obviously meaningful votes, but then indicative votes. Indicative votes. Yeah, Norway, all that, all that huge kind of nomenclature of nonsense
1: and nothing happened yeah <laughs> what people got crossed that's what yeah happened.
5: people got sat at home and just got sick to death of hearing about it
1: and actually it sort of radicalized people i think who it did i normally think weren't that bothered about politics yeah and i'm not sure that's necessarily a good thing
5: no no um definitely not well no, no.
1: i mean it's good if people are interested in politics it was Oh, it was, professionally um, it was
5: great professionally it was great yeah you know it, it sold a lot of papers um kept us in coffee <laughs> which we needed a lot of which we did need a lot of and also during that period as well we
1: also had the phenomenon of jeremy corbyn huge high of 2017 from his perspective followed by the worst result for 85 years yes. of all the things that you've covered in your political career where does jeremy corbyn rank
5: after leader speeches in in party conference the the chief spin doctor will come down to the press floor and there's an almighty fight and everybody huddles around to hear the kind of briefing on the speech, you know, when when X said, you know, why what he actually meant was Z, and then we all write up, Z. So you know, it's a quite important point of the journalistic process um, and a high water mark, so Jeremy Corbyn's first big speech.
4: We need to be investing in skills, investing in our young people, and, strong message here, not cutting student numbers.
5: <laughs> Seamus Milne, his spin doctor, comes down and we ask him about one line, I can't remember what it was, and I, and I just said, Seamus, does, does, does Jeremy Corbyn believe in a market economy? No. No, no. I wouldn't say that. So there is no sort of room for capitalism in, in the UK? <laughs> okay, we're not in Kansas <laughs> anymore. This is like, you know, so it, the frame was just so completely different. It's, yeah. it's almost like we never, you never got to first base with him or his team because there was nothing to, you know, there was no lock Uh, and so while some of the reporting of him was unfair some of it was gentle because we, you know, because we underplayed how absolutely radical or kind of like non-mainstream he was in his thinking And what about the anti-Semitism question? Well I'm proud of what we did with Mm. that Uh, um, I mean Lucy Fisher, Henry Zeffman, Laura we did a good job of reporting uh, that awful story mm-hmm. i think and i'm pleased about that and i'm proud of that and i'm proud of the team for what we did you know it was so easy to get wrong and but we didn't get it wrong so you know we did it properly early well i've just realized that you're
1: the political sort of changed uk no that that attire yeah. that for that, <laughs> that seismic moment in what an Force. extraordinary extraordinary weird time that was yeah Just which next, oh, was Anna Subri joining? Yeah. You know, people we, Anna Subri aside, actually, just lots of people we'd never really bothered speaking to before. Yeah. Suddenly political rock stars for For 10 minutes. Yeah, for 10 minutes, then it was all over. So then we get to 2019 then. There's just the misery of Brexit votes and um, crunch moments that came and went with nothing happening. Illegal prorogation and all of that.
2: When the Royal Commissioners walked into the House of Lords, it was as if they had walked in with a blank sheet of paper. The prorogation was also void and of no effect. Parliament has not been prorogued.
5: Parliament just wouldn't vote to, to, yeah. to dissolve itself, right? And, and there was nothing Johnson could do about it. And uh, I mean, you know, I'm no Cummings fanboy, but it is the, the case that I, I, you know, I remember having a coffee with Cummings. I said, look, Dom, it's not happening for you. You know, they're, they're just going to hold him there and, and boil him alive uh, in all this. And pretty soon the Brexit isn't going to get done and he's going to get blamed for it. And, and, and you're going to get your legs broken. Mm-hmm. And he said, no, we're just going to keep on doing it. I said, well, you know, you've done it three times. <laughs> and he, uh, nobody's voting Surely nobody's stupid enough to actually vote for this. Step forward, the late, unlamented leader of the Lib Dems at the time, Joe Swinson. Chaos, Vincent, and the SNP eventually took the bait, and yeah. um, the rest is history. So, you know, there, there's a, just to say, there is an alternative history where they, yeah. everybody, all the other opposition parties hold their nerve, and that election is not called in that frame because it was obvious. As soon as you put that frame, let's get Brexit
3: done, my friends, and get on with our project of sensible, moderate, sensible, moderate, back tax-cutting, one-nation, conservative.
0: Kind
1: get of, Brexit done is get, one of the most inspired pieces yeah. of political messaging. Well, I mean,
5: it's pretty simple, isn't it? Yeah, you know. yeah.
0: uh, but it appealed
1: to everyone. Apart from ultra-hardcore, EU-beret-wearing Lib Dems who yes. wanted us to rejoin tomorrow. That's most of your listeners. Everyone it? else. I thought that was most of your But everyone else, all the, all the Remainers, most, look, most Remainers who just said, look, well, I think we should stay," but now we've voted we should leave. Just, so let's just get it over with. I want, just want to, to stay at
5: home, exactly. I mean, just you know. get
1: it done. Yeah. Stop talking about it. And then the sort of the last chapter of your multi-chaptered story is Pollard, Is COVID? Yeah, what a that's a,
5: a miserable way to end,
1: really. Yeah, uh, but a way that quite often you did, people would accuse political journalists of overegging the significance of their stories, and yet actually, for the first time, it was a real life and death story that we were reporting on every day.
5: You hang around these kind of. Government spin doctors for long enough to be able to read their body language, and as the months of early 2020 progressed, it became very noticeable uh, that the James Slack, you know, he, he, he looked really haunted.
1: He was um, what by then director, director of communications
5: yeah. for, for, for Johnson had, had done the same job under May. Uh, obviously, a key source if you're a at the Times, uh, and without kind of like. You might want to stock up on, you know, bog roll. You started to get the vibes and I remember coming back one day and saying to my wife, I said, This is like I think this is this whole Covid thing is like a lot more serious than than, than they're letting on. And she said, Oh, we should stock up. I said, don't be ridiculous. What are we going to do? Chuck the you know, tins of you know, baked beans <laughs> at the zombies as they come over there. Anyway, that's something that has been held against me.
1: <laughs> so. Well, I remember I came into this building, into the news building, to have photos done for the Times Radio, which is imminent launch. And it was like a beautiful sunny day. And I thought, I might go over to Westminster. I thought, oh, no, I won't. I'll go You know, I'll go to Westminster tomorrow. And uh, I didn't come into London for three months. You just felt it, sleeping, mm. and then it all happened at once.
5: Lovely Chris Smythe, the, the, the um, Whitehall editor i remember switching the lights out at the times room chris yeah. really was much further ahead down the mental yeah. journey on covid because he had been a former health editor said oh we won't be seeing this for a while. the next time there'll be creepers growing up the walls <laughs> but he wasn't far well of course
1: chris chris's story is brilliant because he was the health editor of the times for years yeah. and yeah. moved to the lobby to get away from health stories yeah. and, and end up becoming essentially COVID editor.
5: covid editor for three years yeah. two and a half years yeah
1: i urge you at this moment of national emergency
5: to stay at home, protect our NHS and
1: save lives. When did you decide you wanted to do something else?
5: Yeah, the truth of the matter is I had made myself a promise at the height of the Brexit, all that misery, that I was never doing this again. You know, I just reached a point in my life where, you know, to do that job, is, it's a huge privilege and a massive honour and all that of it, but it is, it is at least 12 hours a day of being switched on, thinking about nothing other than politics. Uh, and and that became 60 now today during Brexit. And I think, you know, I think I think the pandemic put a spoken a lot of wheels yeah. and just thought, you know.
1: And in terms of your relationships with those people over time, you know, the highs and the lows. And like you said, being the political editor gives you access and people want to speak to you. Did you get on with the various, prime, many prime ministers that you <laughs> covered during your
5: period? Um, of, of highs and lows. I mean, funnily enough, the one that I probably did weirdly... <laughs> so my relationship with David Cameron was complicated by the fact that you know i'd written the book it's the bits of it he didn't like but he knew that i knew if anybody was going to explain his political journey you know it, it was james hanning and i because yeah, you know, it, the book. But, right? yeah but we were never you know he never had me in for cozy chats none of them ever did right but the one funnily enough i didn't have a relationship with her but theresa may was good to me she was she was all right you know you know there are little things like i got a question at the donald trump Presser, which really great ally know, is really partner, in her gift
4: and we'll have no
5: problem with that okay francis uh mr president uh, francis elliott from the times D- uh, do you agree with your ambassador that the entire economy needs to be on the table in a future trade talk a trade deal including the nhs look i think everything with
4: the trade deal is on the table when you when you're dealing in trade everything's on the table so nhs or anything else there are a lot a lot more than that but everything will be on the table
5: absolutely Oh, I'm so proud good. of that. Pr- I'm proud of getting him to say that the NHS was on the table. <laughs> 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 and when she went, when she finally decided to go, you know, uh, yeah, I was one of two people that she told. I, I think history will be reasonably kind to yeah, her, yeah. because I think that it is obvious that there was little else she could do. Yeah, yeah. And she was trying to stop this country from making a historic mistake. And failing.
1: Future Pollets will report on whether or not she was right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, Francis Elliott, thank you so much for joining been, us. This trip down memory lane, for the, the, the political editors on yeah. times. One Radio. day we'll do the real story. Yeah. <laughs> I stop recording. <laughs> and that's all we've got time for on today's episode. We will have the final political editor's interview. Tomorrow with Stephen Swinford, the current political editor, lifting the lid on Boris Johnson and Liz Truss and where politics goes next. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly is goodbye.
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at Lutonrising.org.uk.